Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined by my co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. And we're really happy to have back on the show our old friend, Jason Zengerly, the outstanding New York Times Magazine writer at large who covers politics. He's perhaps best known for his really great in-depth profiles of politicians and leading figures in society, but he's been writing some really interesting analysis pieces lately, kind of short form cuts at what's going on in politics. And I, I was just really excited to bring him back and talk about everything that he's been observing. Jason, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back. It's nice to be here. It's a, a pleasure to have you. It's great to see you. You must be on still, are you on a little bit high still from the deep NCAA tournament run of your beloved Tar Heels? Yes, that high will last uh, decades. <laughs> I actually went to New Orleans with uh, with our daughter for the, the Duke game, and it was uh, like nothing I've ever seen before. It was it was a, it was a good decision. It was fantastic to go. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. With so much that's a bummer in politics and in the news, it's great that you you still get stuff like that in the world. There's still a lot of stuff like that in the world. Yes, yes, there are some good things. There's still some good things, <laughs> but I I gotta I gotta take us to the bummer side of things because I I thought your your most recent piece for the time. It was really interesting. It was kind of a bummer, but it was it, it was kind of a, I don't know, it was a very incisive look at something that I hadn't particularly noticed. You, it's called The Rise of the Tucker Carlson Politician. So first of all, that's designed, that title is designed to trigger people like me, because if there's one thing we don't want rising, it's more Tucker Carlson's. But you write about Blake Masters. He's a Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate in Arizona. And you, you take a look at these kind of weird online video ads he's been running and you connect the dots over to the vibe that Tucker Carlson has established on his show with his 3 million nightly Fox News viewers. So why did this whole dynamic grab your attention? What were you detecting there and, and why did you want to bring it to the attention of your reader? Well, Masters' videos were getting a decent amount of attention among political reporters on, on Twitter and then also just in casual conversation. And I think people were trying to figure out what about them was so strange. And I mean, there were there were some unusual aesthetic choices that he was making. Most political ads feature the candidate with people. I mean, they're, they're very rarely shown alone. They're always sort of talking and interacting. They're talking about their education policies. There, there's a picture of them in a schoolroom, like talking to little kids, reading a book to them. If they're, if they're discussing trade policy, you'll have a picture of them in a factory interacting with the factory workers, probably wearing a hard hat. Masters' ads were strange because he was all by himself, and it's not that unusual, I guess, to be all by yourself. Sometimes you'll be all by yourself in an ad if you're a candidate, but when you do it, when you're talking sort of straight to camera, you're usually doing it like in your living room on a couch, like in this sort of you know homey kind of familial setting. Masters' ads were strange because he was like standing in the middle of the desert or he was in the middle of a hay field, or he was by the edge of the woods that looked like he just walked out of the woods. And in these ads, he makes these really dire pronouncements. Like when one of them, he says, the country is being run by psychopaths. And in another, he said, schools are making your children dumber. And just these really sort of just bleak pronouncements said in these kind of like austere or almost apocalyptic settings. And I think reporters were trying to figure out like, why? Why is he doing this? And a lot of people, their 
their guesses had to go to the fact that Masters is a, a Peter Thiel disciple. He he's he's very young. He's I think he's like 34, 35, and he's basically spent his entire adult life working for Peter Thiel. He met he met Thiel when when Masters was a law student at Stanford, and Thiel I think taught a seminar there. And, and Masters actually like he, I mean I didn't write about this in the piece, but he he took he took such sort of impressive notes of Thiel's lecture and he put them online that they sort of gained a cult following these little, these notes of the lecture that he put up. And then eventually he convinced Thiel to co-write a book with him that became a bestseller based on these notes. So that was sort of the genesis of their relationship. But anyway, he's a, he's a Thiel protege. There's another Thiel protege running for Senate this year in J.D. Vance, who has a little bit more of a you know, non-Thiel backstory than Masters does. But anyway, I think a lot of reporters were looking at the Masters ads and sort of saying, oh, like this has to do with kind of tech oligarchs and, you know, Silicon Valley and sort of this is Thiel. And I think there is some truth to that. But the, the thing that struck me was these ads are basically just Tucker Carlson monologues. I mean, they, they, they hit the same tropes. They even use the same words and they certainly deliver the same message that Tucker delivers in his monologues on Fox News. And the thing that from a political ad standpoint that's tricky is Tucker makes these, delivers these monologues from like a cable news studio, right? And it's a very familiar kind of look. You have the Capitol over his left shoulder, the green screen of the Capitol, you have the Chirons below him. I mean, you're kind of used to hearing these fairly bleak messages from him from the cable news studio. Masters can't do that, right? He has to do it somewhere else, but he can't rely on the usual visual shorthands that politicians rely on because if you're going to say, schools are making your kids stupid. You can't have a video of you talking to little kids in a classroom. So instead you say it in a hayfield. And I wanted to write about the, the Tucker Carlson link because I, I think that, especially as Republicans try to figure out what a post-Trump Republican party looks like, they're all figuring out what that vision is. And I think that you know, Tucker Carlson is probably the most prominent and you know, articulate kind of spokesman for a certain kind of nationalist populist vision that I think Thiel, I think Thiel himself shares. And I think Masters and Vance are also doing a lot to sort of promote in their Senate campaigns. And in a lot of ways are really just kind of running on a Tucker Carlson playbook. And I think it's twofold. One, I think they do it because they want to get on Tucker's show because they view that as a way to reach voters. But I also think that they they recognize that it's in a Republican Republican primary that that view could have a lot of supporters and it could be the way to win the primary. So it's a real, it's a really interesting test case just in terms of how much political power Tucker Carlson has right now, because I think, I think feel, I'm sorry, I think Masters and Vance are really good test cases to see how much he has. And obviously Trump complicates it a little bit. Trump now coming into Ohio and endorsing Vance has made it a little bit more of a referendum on Trump than anything else. But I still think both of them, it will be really interesting to see how how they perform in these primaries and if the sort of the Tucker Carlson wing of the party is, is, is as ascendant as it seems. So there's a lot to unpack in, in, what, in, in what you've talked about in terms of you, you referenced post-Trump. I'm not so sure we're really post-Trump or the Republican Party, even though some, of, some folks say, well, maybe it's post-Trump, that we really are post-Trump. And I think about a nationalist populist message with Trump coming down the golden staircase talking about Mexican rapists and connecting to the apocalyptic vision that uh, Republicans uh, love to instill because after all, fear is so much stronger than hope, that hopey changey thing. 
fear works so well. And it's kind of interesting in that context to watch Tucker Carlson's evolution, because, I mean, in the early 2000s, he was sort of a mainstream conservative journalist, someone he was widely noted for reacting with, with supposed horror to George W. Bush's mocking a clemency plea from a woman on Texas's death row. RLFA Tucker, yeah. Yeah, right. Then he was a, a co-host on of Crossfire and until John Stewart's takedown. Now he's in his current Fox News incarnation, uh, incarnation, which has it has all the hallmarks you point out in your article. He's trolling liberals and going hard on culture war issues and pretending to be a populist when he's a bow tie blazer wearing ivy league elitist and and it really is a mirror of what's worked in the republican party although when i think about the old-fashioned republicans with their bow ties and and their blazers and i look at carlson it's kind of interesting because there are a lot of republicans who are it's now camo and ak's instead of bow ties and blazers but that that's beside the point so the question is it is it really is a mirror of the evolution of what it seems to be working in the Republican Party. And is that what you're pointing to with the master's example and, and the article that there's been, that there's this evolution that's going on and it's still uh, going on? Yeah, I think that's part of it. And when I, when I say post-Trump, I mean post-Trump the individual. I think I think Trumpism is here to stay. And I think the Republican Party is long after Trump exits the stage, either because he passes away or because he decides not to run. The issues that he brought to the fore will continue to dominate the party. And I think I think the challenge for, and, and I think this sort of the thing that that Tucker Carlson is trying to do and Masters and Vance are trying to do as well. And feel is certainly trying to do, and you see it in these this movement of the national conservatives is try to bring some kind of intellectual coherence to Trumpism. I mean, Trump, there's kind of like a lizard brain populism there that has not been fully thought through. And I think what you've seen since Trump was elected is a bunch of conservative intellectuals either trying to kind of add some intellectual heft to Trumpism or just reverse engineer an intellectual doctrine to, to match it. And, that, and that's what, and that's sort of the space that I think Tucker Carlson occupies. I mean, obviously he's a, he's a popular cable news host. I mean, you're not going to get like an intellectual treatise every night on his show, but it's a very different program from Sean Hannity or Laura Ingram. He, he does stake out kind of a, a much more coherent ideological position in a way that those those two in particular, Ingram and Hannity, will basically just back Trump with whatever he says. I mean, wherever Trump goes, they will follow and they will support him. Carlson, he he obviously was supportive of Trump when Trump was president and and to a certain degree owes his current primetime spot to the fact that he kind of he understood Trumpism and understood Trump's potential, I think, a lot earlier than a lot of other Fox hosts did. I mean, he was he was the the weekend anchor of Fox and Friends for a number of years. I mean, he was not exactly batting in the big leagues. And when Trump was when Trump went down the golden escalator, there weren't a lot of pundits at Fox and anywhere else that were really kind of willing to take him seriously. And Tucker Tucker did. And Fox just had the simple problem that they needed to get people on the air to talk about Trump in a 
if not positive, at least serious way, who weren't total idiots. And so Tucker started getting start Tucker started getting more airtime on shows that he had previously not been invited onto on Fox, and he was able to eventually ride that to this primetime show. So he he owes a lot of his success right now to Trump, but at the same time, he's always kept a little bit of a distance from Trump. I mean, it was interesting, like when the January sixth committee was releasing all those text messages that yeah. you know were going to Meadows and all. You didn't see Tucker on there. He saw Hannity and Ingram. I mean, he yeah. his back channeling was a little different, I think, and. He was also willing to criticize Trump. I mean, I remember, I don't know if you remember, but in the summer of 2020, I mean, he went to Trump's right and basically attacked him for not cracking down on George Floyd protesters. <laughs> he was calling Trump a wimp. So I think that he has an ideological vision that is that is a little bit different than Trump's and doesn't necessarily rely on the Trump cult of personality that other conservatives do. And that and that's what I find interesting about him and interesting about this moment and interesting about those master's ads and and the Vance campaign is that with varying degrees of success and each one is a little bit different, they're trying to stake out a, a post-Trump vision of the party that is just as nationalist, just as populist as Trump's, but doesn't really depend on the cult of personality. And in some ways, it's a lot more coherent and consistent than Trump, right? I think like Trump right. is not an ideologue in some ways. Trump is just about himself. Like these guys actually have some pretty sincere ideological convictions. I mean, I know everybody says Vance is a cynic and and I think the way he's handled Trump, there's plenty of plenty of evidence for that. But I do think there is a there's a there's a sincere ideology there on his part that I don't think you can just dismiss out of hand. And that, well, that's what I find interesting. You know, that, that's that's what I think is the point though, is that he has an ideology and it's been so interesting to see the Republican establishment try to retrofit it's it's like this weird kind of transubstantiation they try and do when you have these incarnations of sort of the republican id running around like lauren bobert or marjorie taylor green and kind of fulminating these like kind of crazy right-wing ideas and you see the republican establishment sort of at pains especially when donald trump himself does them to sort of fit them into, oh, well, this is consistent with Republican Party doctrine because, and Tucker Carlson actually does have some kind of an, an ideology and vision, period, full stop. And I think it's a, it's a questionable idea as to whether Donald Trump himself does, but it does, that does kind of bring to mind a tweet that you sent Back on oh March thirtieth, yeah, I know. I'm I'm deep diving into your. No, look, you're not you're not in the kind of trouble that other Times reporters or Wapo reporters get into with their tweets. You do nothing but good tweets. Okay, okay. <laughs> you sent a tweet. You sent a tweet on March thirtieth. It was a great tweet. I sound like Donald Trump now. It's like, oh, great tweet. It's a really great tweet. The, the, nothing but the best tweets. No, you the best tweets. They're very strong it, tweets. Amidst a lot of a, a lot of heart throbbing for the Tar Heels, you sent yes. a tweet where you said. I'd like to read a smart article or thread that explains the Republican establishment, Rove, McCarthy, and the two Republican U.S. senators from North Carolina, the two Republican leaders in the North Carolina State House, are mobilizing against Madison Cawthorn. This was at the height of his drug-fueled orgies thing. Why they're mobilizing against Madison Cawthorn, but not against Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Bulbert, Paul Gosar, and, and these figures. So I guess my question here is, did you ever get a really good answer to the question you posed in your tweet? And why is it that these, like I said, these incarnations of fucking it are sort of okay? They're, they're, they're all right, 
But what Cawthorn did is somehow crossing the red line. I did. I actually did get a couple answers to that. One answer, and this is, it's not, it's actually, it's sort of, it's kind of like small ball, but I think it might actually be the, the truth is that Cawthorn, like he actually pissed off Republican congressional you know, members of Congress by saying stuff about them. Like for all of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Laura Boebert's like ridiculousness, they don't sort of cross other Republican members. Cawthorn, had, you know, he picked a fight with uh, the Virginia or the West Virginia congressman whose name I'm now forgetting right now, Allen, I think his name is. He said this stuff about cocaine orgies and members then had to like answer their wives' questions about what was going on. I think I think part of it is just personal. He he is he has sort of said and done things that have brought them personal discomfort. So it's easier. So they don't and they don't like him for that reason. I mean, I also think that he he made himself vulnerable. I mean, the I don't know how much you paid attention to his 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 political maneuvering in the past six months, but he tried to switch districts when the, when the maps were originally drawn in North Carolina, he was actually going to run not in the district he represents right now. He was going to move to the adjacent district, which was centered in Charlotte. And it was, it was like an R plus 13. And basically I think he saw it as a safer seat in some ways. And then also gave him access to the, this very large media market. I think he eventually wants to run for governor. He did that. Then the maps got struck down, they were redrawn, and that seat in Charlotte became a much more competitive seat. So he moved back to his old district. But in the meantime, when he had left, a bunch of other Republicans had announced that they were running for the seat. And so they were already in the race. And so he actually had some kind of formidable primary challengers. And I think that's probably why you, that's the other reason you see Republicans mobilizing against him. It's very specific to him. I think that they view, they, they see this as an opportunity to take him out. I think if, if, if Marjorie Taylor Greene or Boebert presented a similar kind of weakness, they would maybe move on, move on them as well, but they don't, they haven't, they haven't screwed up the way Cawthorn has. And by the way, he, he was pictured in women's lingerie and hoop earrings. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's had, he's had quite a few months. It's going to be fascinating if, if he, if he actually gets defeated in this primer, if he doesn't get to 30%, I mean, that'll be really interesting, but I, I think there's a good chance he, he will, he will actually get, you know, knocked out in the primary. It just, it is fascinating though, that we're just a few years, culturally, we're like five minutes past the point where, what was that Iowa congressman who made a bunch of white supremacist Steve comments? Steve King. Steve, Steve King. King. How quickly he we was forget. Booted, but like, now, Bobert, Gosar, they attend white supremacist rallies, actual bona fide white supremacist rallies. And it's like, yeah, it's all right. You had a piece in January, Jason, where you looked at Michael Fanone, a Metropolitan Police Department officer who went a little viral in the week after the January 6th attack when he gave an interview to CNN, a host of other news outlets. And then he took a job as an on-air commentator on law enforcement issues on CNN. Now, he was a self-described redneck American who voted for Trump in 2016. But once he took the CNN job and criticized the attackers, the right turned on him like a pack of wolves. Why does, what does his saga say about the political war being waged on TV? But I think it says a couple things. I think one, it says that there really is no kind of middle ground for people who are just kind of bearing witness and telling the facts as they see them. I mean, Fanon was known because he was, he was badly injured by, by the mob on January 6th, and there was video of it, and he was willing to speak out about it. And 
It seems like that should be a relatively uncontroversial thing, but of course- Not if it's normal political discourse, and he happened to get injured during normal political discourse. So it, it wasn't it wasn't uncontroversial. And then I think the thing that struck me about the whole thing was just the fact that he, he had become a CNN commentator. I mean, there's something, I don't know, to me, it's just, it was just sad, I thought, that this guy who had a horrible thing happen to him and, and dealt with it, I think, as sort of, as forthrightly and as, as bravely as he could have was, is now forced to basically relive that event every day on cable news, because that that's what he's on CNN to talk about. I mean, I'd imagine he'll offer some other thoughts on law enforcement, but he's basically there to just relive that day. And he's just been kind of, I don't know, incorporated into the, the, the CNN kind of resistance infrastructure. And that's, you know, in a way that you've seen with other kind of, with other figures who've sort of stumbled into the culture war. And I don't want to compare him to Kyle Rittenhouse. They're obviously different people, but, and Rittenhouse is, his stumbling into it was, was, was more problematic than Fanon's. But, but similarly, I mean, uh, these, these, these individuals sort of get, they just kind of get enlisted into this, this bigger culture war and just watching them try to navigate it. And more often than not, the way you navigate that is through a cable news contributor contract these days or appearances on these primetime shows, whether it's the primetime shows on Fox or the primetime shows on CNN. And I think the CNN primetime shows, I mean, maybe this will change a little bit now that Jeff Sucker's not there anymore, but they are in some ways just as, just as sort of ideological as, as the Fox ones and, and certainly as the MSNBC ones. And that, and that's, that's what interested me about him. Well, you know, we were talking just a few minutes ago about the John Stewart takedown of Tucker Carlson on Crossfire. That was in 2004. It was 18 years ago. And that was in the context of your other article about sort of the performative culture war populism that's dominating Republican political culture currently. But you're, you're sort of making a broader point, it seems, in this other piece about Fanon, about, and this is going to sound like a both sidesism, but about sort of the media ecosystem, particularly on cable news. Stewart's point 18 years ago was that those crossfire yell fests were vapid and they were hurting America, his words. But I wondered after reading your piece on Fanon, whether in the past 18 years, cable news has gotten even more vapid and is hurting America even more. I, and I, I just, you, you had a line in, in, in your article where you, you, you kind of, you point to the self-referential quality of cable news that frequently they're commenting on other shows on their own network or sniping at something that happened on another network. And I, we just saw this spin cycle play out in Fox News losing its minds over the Taylor Lorenz so-called controversy over doxing of the libs of TikTok account proprietor. I mean, just saying those words makes me feel dumber, honestly. <laughs> but the articles that were running on Fox News were, you could just see the wheels turning inside the bowels of Fox News. It was like, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to get someone to comment on Carlson. Then we write a follow-up article the next day where we say media analyst slams, blah, 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 blah. And it's like a brand new story. It's not set up to say 18 minutes ago. It, it seems to be, I, again, that combination of it's vapid, but it's actually hurting our brains. Is that, <laughs> is that a thing as 
as much worse as it seems to me? I think it's significantly worse. I mean, I, I don't think I, I, when John Stewart said that on Crossfire, I think I largely agreed with him, but I think in hindsight, the, the end of Crossfire and the end of that style of cable news debate, which was the dominant format of cable news, you had the left and the right, you had people debate each other. I mean, it was, it didn't used to just be Hannity. It was Hannity and Colmes, right? Like, and right. say what you will about Alan Colmes, but it was, you had two people who represented divergent points of view who would then argue on screen. Like you don't have that anymore. You have everybody who represents the exact same point of view on the show who will attack the opposing point of view, but the opposing point of view isn't there to respond. And so if you liberals on MSNBC will attack Fox and will attack conservatives, conservatives on Fox will attack liberals and on MSNBC, but they never actually appear together. So I think in some ways the, the, de- it makes me long for crossfire, which I can't believe I would ever say, but at least then you, you did have a debate. There's not really a debate anymore. There's just, there's just sort of attacks and just hit jobs on, on the opposing side. And you wind up getting stuff like the, the Taylor Lorenz episode, and, and there'll be another one next week. And it's always the same thing. And then increasingly it, you're right. It, it is just, commenting on other on other cable channels and on other publications and just it, it just can't get any any stupider than that jason to follow up on 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 can you get any stupider than that you wrote a piece a year ago called how the trump era broke the sunday morning news show where you pointed out that the that the old style well, point of view here point of view there is essentially untenable in the trump age because there aren't two sides to facts. But the Kellyanne Conway uh, view of the world with her alternative facts and Rand Paul saying whatever he wants to say with zero accountability is, is, is dominating. You, and you wrote these words and I'm quoting, yes, those self-important shows with their self-important anchors have never been as crucial to our constitutional system as they like to imagine, but they have at least provided a refuge from the soft focused fecklessness of the network's evening news and the shrieking of the primetime carnival barkers on cable. And by the way, let me just say that quote is one of my favorite things I've ever read because of the alliteration and the (laughs) carnival barkers on cable. It's brilliant, brilliant writing, and it reads really well. But it's not true anymore, is it? No, no. The the Sunday shows have been just as uh, as contaminated by this stuff as as cable. And I think, you know, partly it's it's the, the passing of some of these old hosts. I mean, I do wonder, people, I think people have probably exaggerated Tim Russert's greatness and his important importance, but I, but I do wonder how he would have handled this. I mean, he was, he was very good at drilling down on his interview subjects and really just doing such impressive prep that he could, he, he could, he could quickly respond to any sort of any statement they made, especially if it was, you know, a lie and he, he would, he would sort of get them. And I think the other thing about Russert that was different from today was he had a lot of time to interview people. I think, I do wonder with these Sunday shows, if instead of doing four interviews or five interviews in the course of an hour, if they just did one or two, if you, if you have 30 minutes with someone, even someone like Rand Paul, who's just, just saying up is down. I think you, I think it could be a more productive exchange. And I do wonder if maybe, if maybe the if a Sunday show did that, if you might get a little bit better results, but for the most part, you are dealing with some political figures who just are just lying through their teeth. And, you know, I think 
we saw that last week with, with the Kevin McCarthy stuff, just, just being just flat out caught in a flagrant lie. And Kevin McCarthy will be back on a Sunday show in in a few weeks. If, If he dares to go, I mean, that's the other issue. Like I think increasingly politicians don't want to subject themselves to any sort of potentially kind of not even hostile questioning, just hard questioning. So Kevin McCarthy would probably be more likely to go on Fox Business or something than to actually go on Meet the Press or something like that. Well, first of all, this is exactly why we do Beyond Politics as a 45-minute show, because we want to be able to dive a little bit deeper. And second, well, I really, I, I want to follow up on what you were just saying, because we don't have Tim Russert with us anymore. But we do have Jason Sangerly with us, and you're in a position that very few of us get to be in. I, I noted at the top of the show that you're actually best known in journalism circles for doing deep dives on political figures and really doing the work and getting to know them and asking them the, the probing questions. And I agree with you. It does look like Kevin McCarthy is basically going to get away with a bald-faced lie and there's going to be no political consequence. There's no, there's no shame consequence either here. And it, it does, it feels like part of a larger trend on, on the great ideas show that I do that's just, it's just policy. I had an expert from the American Enterprise Institute, Kevin Kosar, who pointed out as a follow-up to a, an op-ed, it was research he had done. He wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post highlighting research he's been doing, congressional hearings used to actually be where you tried to figure out some policy. Now, they were performative. Of course, they were performative. I mean, back in The Godfather Part Two, they were performative, right? But <laughs> committees are where you used to try to make policy by asking experts probing questions. The number of witnesses that are willing to go in front of congressional committees has dropped. It's about a fifth of hmm. what it used to be. And it's because basically people don't want to be challenged. They want opportunities for free airtime to say their point of view. That's all that matters. Paul, back when you were in Congress, the leadership used to beat on us every day because you'd get an hour for special orders. Those are speeches you just get to make. You just get to sound off. The Democrats get an hour, the Republicans get an hour, and it's airing at like two in the morning on C-SPAN. But they wanted that uninterrupted hour for members of Congress just to speak literally the party line. So I guess just to circle my rant back to you, Jason, I mean, what do you do as a journalist frequently faced with talking to these folks? What do you do about all this? Now, Mark Jacobs, the former editor of Chicago Tribune, Chicago Sun-Times, said on this show a couple months ago that his approach is that journalists have to write things, everything, in a truth sandwich. You've got to say what the truth is, embed the statement that's full of it from the politician, and then afterwards restate the truth how do you handle this what do you do when someone's telling you a bald-faced lie and yeah i think you press them on it and then if they keep on telling a bald-faced lie you you make note of the fact that they're lying in the story i mean the interviews i do are very different though than what you're doing on on the sunday shows or any tv i mean they're those are those those are performative right like you're part part of the part of that interview is the interviewer is is conducting him or herself in such a way that it's conveying something to the audience. I mean, I don't have to worry about that. Like I, in my, in my interviews, they don't occur on camera. I mean, sometimes there's, there's tape of them and sometimes that'll make it onto something like the daily, but for the most part, it's, it's, there's a, 
the sausage making isn't exposed to the public. So I think that does allow you a little bit more freedom and the, and the interviews can be a little bit more circuitous and you have a lot of time. And I think, I think more time even than Tim Russert used to have. And I think you can oftentimes by having that much time and being able to take your time and have multiple bites at the apple and come back and, and sort of ask again, like you're able to kind of arrive maybe more at the truth. I don't know if you guys saw it, but I don't know if Jonathan Swan is, he's at Axios. Yes. He did. I mean, I think this is the model. I don't know if you saw the interview you did with Mitch McConnell a few weeks ago, but it's, it's worth watching that because it can be done. I mean, he, it was a very respectful interview and it was done on a stage in front of the public, but it had sort of a TV kind of studio quality to it. And his questions were just brilliant. And he, he really exposed McConnell. I mean, not in a gotcha way, but just in a, he, he really thought of smart questions that would you know, elicit answers from McConnell or non-answers from McConnell that were revealing. And, and the one that I remember was, we asked him if he had any sort of moral red lines when it came to morality. And McConnell was sort of flummoxed by the concept. But, but what, what, what Swan was getting at basically was, you said all these horrible things about Trump, you say he's terrible, he tried to steal an election, he launched an insurrection, you gave this very you know, forceful speech against him on the Senate floor, but then a couple of weeks later, you said that you would support him if he's the Republican nominee in 2024. Like, what, you know, what, is there a line that Trump can cross that would mean you don't support him? And McConnell really couldn't answer the question. And it was a really, it was just a very sort of, it was a smart question that Jonathan asked and it, it produced a very revealing answer. And, and, I don't, and it wasn't, I think too often, especially TV viewers, they want kind of a, a few good men moment. They want the, they want, the, you know, this, and you saw this during the Trump years with the the guy, what's his name, Acosta at CNN. Jim I mean, Acosta, it does, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I thought those things were embarrassing and it was stupid. And him like standing up the White House press conferences and yelling at Trump, why don't you tell the truth? Like, you're not going to get an answer <laughs> and you're not going to get a, it's just not going to reveal anything. But I think patient, persistent questioning that has a lot of research behind it. I think you actually can get get some sort of newsworthy answers and you can actually see something that's that's revealing. And I do think there are people out there who are doing it, but unfortunately they're not employed by any of the networks at the moment. So Jason, I, I'm gonna zoom out just a little bit because we've been we've been talking a little bit about what's a poor journalist to do. And there's another context for that question. I've been thinking a lot about the changes over the past uh, decade or so since I was in Congress and iPads weren't allowed on the floor of the House and we all had Blackberries and, and there was no political Facebook and there was no share, sharing disinformation. There was no retweeting bad stuff on, on Twitter and, and television was our medium and we were all fighting for a few columns of newspaper ink. <laughs> and it, it's all very interesting in light of the Elon Musk takeover bit of Twitter. He wants to have social media platforms be less refereed, more of a free for all. President Obama just wrote a long piece about the danger of disinformation in our society, he was out in Stanford talking about. There was a piece in The Atlantic that just got published about social media eroding the mortar of our society. And all, I mean, we're humans caught in this digital age. We just hosted one of the top election law scholars in America, Rick Hasen, on our show to talk about his new book about cheap speech and the corrosive effect of misinformation and disinformation on 
our shared story, on our society, on our institutions. And you're in the, fir you're in the First Amendment business. The press is as important to our democracy as any branch of government. And these days, arguably, maybe more important um, than any branch of, of government because we're in this weird, weird, it, it's like the twilight zone of truth. And what do we do about this? How, how what do we do? What do we do? You how write do for the New York Times, you must have the answer to you, this. You're a smart guy, what do we do? <laughs> Oh, God. I think the answer probably has to do more to do with the Concord Monitor and the, whatever the Nashua paper is than it does the New York Times in some ways. Uh -huh. I mean, I, I really do think that a lot of the problem has to do with the hollowing out of local news and the, 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 the distance that is created between news consumers and, and journalistic institutions. I think it's very easy for politicians to, and just anyone, to bash the New York Times or to bash, bash CNN or to bash MSNBC or the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal or Fox News for that matter, because people are receptive to that because they don't know anyone who works at these places. The distance between those institutions and the individual news consumers is so great that it's easy to you know, exploit that distance and create distrust. Whereas, when you had robust local journalism institutions, local newspapers, local TV stations, whatever, you know, people knew these reporters. They 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 knew them from their kids' schools, or they went to you know church with them, or synagogue, or whatever. I mean, these were individuals that they actually knew. It was much harder to say this this reporter for this the Concord paper is is a liar and is a liberal or whatever and it's, it's fake news because like no actually I kind of know that guy he's not and I think some of that trust ultimately benefited national reporters as well I mean, just journalists they're, they're, people people would know who journalists are so they they might not have the highest opinion of them but they knew they weren't total frauds which I think a lot of people think they are now so I do think that 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 distrust of journalism and that this idea that you can just kind of operate operate in your own fact-free environment, I think that has been exacerbated by by the decline of these these local journalism journalism institutions. And I think I think one of the really pressing needs is going to be figuring out an economic model that allows for those to to be built back up. And you're seeing it in some places. Yeah, but is it look? Isn't that isn't that the just the the authoritarian to to attack the media, attack journalism, attack, sure. attack the truth, turn it upside down, so that you have a a free fire zone to to say whatever you want. It's it's pretty it, it's 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 pretty standard dictatorship one hundred and one brought forward to the digital age. That was it. Strikes me the mastery the brilliance, if you will, of Donald Trump to understand that that with uh, Mein Kampf on his bedside, he could simply take down journalism. Wait, hold no, on. But You're I, presuming but... that Donald Trump reads, let alone no, no, German. I'm but... saying it's on his bedside. I'm not saying he read it. I'm just saying he keeps <laughs> Like it a picture of your kids, right? Yeah, just keep but it Trump... on his bedside. I mean, Trump was not the first politician, certainly not the first Republican politician to, to demonize the media. I mean, go back to Agnew's speech, what was it, in 69? 
where he, he singled out the three network newscasts, the nattering nabobs and nepotism and the intellectual elite corridors of Washington and New York. I mean, it's very similar to the stuff that Trump was saying. I mean, George H.W. Bush in, in 80, no, 92, when he ran for re-election, remember he used to go to his, uh, his rallies and he would hold up a, a bumper sticker that said, annoy the media, re-elect Bush. This, this, this is my favorite. Sarah Palin and the lamestream media. Yeah, this is not, I mean, this has been, this is a, a tried and true tactic. And I think, and I think, look, maybe Trump embraced it more than others have. That, that is probably true. He took it to, to an extreme that others hadn't taken it to before, but the, but the conditions on the ground were, were, were there for Trump to exploit in a way that I don't think they were there before. And I think that's the difference. And I'm not, look, I don't think it all comes down to local media, but it's just something that I've noticed. I mean, in my, in my job, I mean, so much of my job is parachuting into places, right? And in some ways, the decline, and this is horrible, but in some ways, the decline of, of, of these smaller papers and stuff has been good for people like me because I can go to Montgomery, Alabama and get sourced up in a couple of weeks. And there are just stories that are just sitting there because there aren't enough state house reporters or just, they just, they don't have enough manpower to cover this stuff. And so it's, it's, it's easier for someone like me. Whereas if I go to Washington, you're like fighting off 50 other journalists. I mean, there are too many, there are too many reporters in Washington and New York and Los Angeles, not enough in Montgomery and Albany and wherever else, Madison. I do think that, I do think that's part of the story. Well, I think the, the one thing that people can do affirmatively is to seek out good sources of information and analysis that are not part of the vapid back and forth repeating of the party line, dumbing down that we've seen. One of those sources, our favorite nattering nabob, is Jason Zengerly of the New York <laughs> Times. And so I urge people, check him out. You can follow his tweets. It's okay. No weird tweets out of Jason. <laughs> a lot of basketball. <laughs> a lot of basketball. Read him in the New York Times. And of course, Follow us and subscribe to Beyond Politics. For Paul Hodes, I'm Matt Robeson. Thanks so much.